0: If I were to describe my own stock character, I'd be like a Wednesday Addams type who's like, ooh, I'm so dark and mysterious and weird, but interesting and intriguing. But really, I'm just kind of basic. (laughs)
1: To, like a Fish Needs a Starship, a bitterly feminist sci-fi podcast. We are your hosts, Steph and Kat. Hi, Steph!
0: <laughs> Hi, Kat. <laughs> so, I guess maybe we should give an update to explain yeah. what, what's been happening. Um,
1: yeah. So, we actually recorded episode three, like, what? Two weeks ago? Which feels like two years ago in this time of the coronavirus and mandatory quarantine in which we live. Uh,
0: yeah, I have, I have to say this is the weirdest fucking thing that has ever <laughs> happened to me in my life. But anyway, we recorded episode three um, two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, and we must say it was hilarious. It was. Um, However, it did not survive. (laughs) We we could not figure out why. um, And that was super discouraging. But then the coronavirus happened and... um, my mom is immunocompromised because she's a cancer survivor. And so I, even though where we live is not requiring citizens to quarantine, you know, the CDC did issue these social distancing recommendations. And I would probably be doing social distancing anyway. To be very perfectly honest, I'm really frustrated with all the people in my life that are not doing it. Um, but given my mom's circumstances. I basically started working from home two weeks ago and haven't left except to buy groceries. So Kat and I, in the meantime, have been trying to figure out how to continue recording the podcast remotely. And it's been a journey. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, and and we're recording from inside our closets uh, because we've we've been given to understand that that helps with audio quality. (laughs) So anyway... Stick with us while we're trying to figure out what to do uh, during the apocalypse. <laughs> so um, how's your toilet paper situation over there, Steph? It is not good. Um, oh. I've had to adjust a lot of my habits. Um, okay. TMI, but I am an aggressive wiper. and um, <laughs> <laughs> And that's not appropriate any longer in the uh. world that we live in. I think we're down to, like, seven rolls. It's been, we haven't found it anywhere, but we haven't been going out that often. Like I said, it's it's not worth the risk for us. Um, yeah. But we have lots of tissue paper. But
1: that's okay. That's good. Yeah. So, I guess. So I guess if it's,
0: there's late, ever to, it's in a late bed in
1: world.
0: It <laughs> can't be fair and square. Uh, how have you been doing, Kat?
1: I, I've been doing well. The biggest pressure for me is going to be next week because we made the decision to pull our daughter out of the daycare that was somehow miraculously still open. but this has gotten to the point where obviously we, it was just not appropriate to have her in school anymore. All those little children are infested with disease on a normal day. so so she will be home with me next week. <laughs>
0: There's just so much stress and, uh, you know, mm-hmm.
1: anyway, so
0: here we are, uh,
1: yeah, all right,
0: recording episode three, um, so I don't know if it's gonna be as hilarious now that we're dealing with the apocalypse, but
1: <laughs> we're gonna try. Yeah. So let's, um, let's get into it. Season one, episode three, the end is the beginning.
0: And at this point, I had felt like the whole show was, why does everyone hate Jean-Luc Picard? And I kind of felt like it it became, like, farcical to the extension that, you know, I felt like he needed to, like, change the theme song and pop up and be like, why does everyone hate me? Um, (laughs) Because none of these characters had any legitimate reason, I feel like, to actually hate him. The reason seemed really poorly fabricated to me.
1: We'll talk about that throughout the show, and then that also plays into episode four as well. And one of the benefits, I think, of having seen the whole series is I do think it allows us to go back and reevaluate whether things made sense in the context of the larger whole. And there are some things now, having seen everything, that I can go back and I can look at. I can be like, all right, I can see now, having seen the end of the series, what the writers wanted us to think, what the writers wanted us to feel. what the writers were trying to convey sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't so you know we'll we'll talk about that but let's go ahead and get into it we open up as the series is wont to do on a flashback to starfleet headquarters 14 years ago where picard is just coming out of a meeting with the starfleet head honchos Raffi is there. These Starfleet uniforms, by the way, are ridiculous. They are tacky AF, and I hate them with a passion. <laughs> I have totally the opposite
0: feeling. No! I really like them. Yeah, I thought no! they were really cool. They're like, so, well, I mean, I guess it sort of fits into the whole, like, Starfleet as dystopia. I thought they were, like, very serious and scary. They They kind of reminded me a little bit of the uniforms in Deep Space Nine.
1: Oh, I see. The thing that I didn't like about them was like this stupid piping that was like under the shoulder area where it was like an extra like pattern and then it made a diamond. I just, I thought that was stupid and unnecessary. And, like, somewhere out there, there's some person that works at Starfleet who's in charge of coming up with the new uniforms, and they're like, I'm going to show everybody my vision! And, and...
0: Yeah. I really like, I really liked the piping, but I- I'm just a fan of piping.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, girl, you're going to love episode five. <laughs> so anyway, um, Picard tells Rafi that he's just come out of this meeting, and that Starfleet has chosen to halt the Romulan rescue, in no small part because they no longer have synthetic labor to assist in the evacuation because the Federation, dun, 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 is banning all synthetic life and research after the Mars attack. <coughs> Rafi just like automatically guesses that it's the Tal Shiar. Why? No reason at all. Not none at all. No
0: yeah. Even after having seen the whole series, there's no explanation for why she just automatically suspected them. Because, I mean, at least from the information that we gather, I mean, obviously, I, I think we have to assume that the characters have information that we don't have as the audience. There really seemed to be no actual reason for her to immediately assume that um yeah. except except that for uh, as a storytelling device i suppose it forces us to
1: start considering that perhaps it is the tal shiar that is yeah,
0: responsible for that
1: but that's that's bad writing i mean you know there's there's nothing in the history of star trek about the tal shiar that would make somebody automatically consider them like you know they don't have like a calling card that they leave at the scene of their crimes where you can see it and be like it's the ace of spades that means it's the <laughs> she are so it, it's just it's like why throw us a bone throw us a clue but they don't anyway picard tells rafi that he threatened starfleet with his resignation and she's like well obviously they didn't take it and then picard's like no actually they were like cool bro Happy retirement. So, whoops. That didn't (laughs) go with plans. So we we talked about this before and and your
0: opinions of whether or not some of Picard's behavior throughout this series is actually Picard-like or not. Or if your impressions of him like a character are, you know, colored through the lens of what the... TNG series meant for you as like you know a formative program of from your youth to me and again I didn't have the same emotional connection to TNG that you do but this seemed very un-Picard like to me like everything about this whole interaction.
1: I think yes it is un-Picard like because the behavior that we would expect Picard to exhibit is the behavior that would make Starfleet be like, oh, I guess you're right. You know, we would expect Picard to go in and meet with these people and give this grand, glorious speech about doing the right thing and morality. And then they would be like, oh yeah, you're right. Okay, we're going to continue on with the relocation and we're going to not ban sense. That doesn't happen. And I think what the show is showing us is that Picard doesn't, know how to handle things when things don't go his way because stuff would usually go his way in the next generation he would give his speech and everything would fall into place the world has changed and what I think the show is telegraphing is that when things don't go Picard's way he retreats he retreats from Raffi he retreats as we'll see in a later episode from Elnor uh, he retreats from kind of the world at large and holds himself up at the chateau, quote unquote, waiting to die. Although I still think that looks like an amazing retirement. I don't really know what the problem was there, but <laughs> that that's kind of how I took it. That one of the themes of the show is Picard coming to grips with the fact that he let the perfect become the enemy of the good. And that when he couldn't get, when he couldn't get Starfleet to do things exactly his way, He kind of stormed off, and he retreated, and he abandoned people that meant something to him and to whom he meant something to, and he has to deal with the fallout of that. Do I think the show was successful in portraying that? I do not, but I think that's what they wanted us to see.
0: I guess my my issue was with it was just that I felt like the Picard that I knew from TNG, although he might have come up with this, I'm going to resign as the ultimate threat, and obviously they're not going to take that, although he might have come up with that, I think that he would have chosen instead to like fight from within undermine the power from within (laughs) you know (laughs) um or if not that you know if you're gonna use the bomb of I'm going to resign now you don't just say whoops I guess I'm just gonna go back to my chateau peace out let all the Romulans die you know the whole thing just seemed very bizarre
1: anyway so Raffi is very upset that Picard has given up his career in Starfleet. It's really clear that she has, like, hitched her entire wagon to Picard's star. She senses, oh, great, if your career is over, my career is over, too, and she storms off. Back in the present, Picard has come to see Raffi because he needs something, and this will become a theme, Picard going to these people that he abandoned because he needs things from them. Uh, Rappi is smoking some good shit, she's helping herself (laughs) to Picard's wine, she's lecturing Picard about class differences! Stand up and take on the greed and corruption of the ruling class. Okay, Stephanie, let's talk economics, and I am (laughs) going to lead off this economics discussion by revealing to all of you my shameful secret, (laughs) which is that... I got a one on my AP Economics exam in high school. Dun, dun, dun! (laughs) I got a five in all of my other classes, but AP Economics? uh, Nope. nope. I, Economics, I cannot say that it has
0: been something that I've been particularly interested in, and, um, you know, not to reference now the... Lost episode of It Like a Fish needs a (laughs) podcast, but um, when we talked about this originally, we joked around about how it's interesting, but we've never been interested in it. But seeing as how like we're potentially ending ending up in a global depression, perhaps we should uh, become interested in it (laughs) now. I feel like maybe, (laughs) yeah. So anyway, um, I don't know anything about the economic situation in the Star Trek universe, but I know you do. So can you give us like, yeah, give us a a rundown of, of what, what's up in the economics
1: world of Starfleet. So here's what we know. We know that earth in the 24th century does not use money earth in the 24th century is a post-scarcity economy at least for basic needs money does exist outside the federation uh there are non-federation worlds that transact with currency a lot of these worlds use a currency called latinum we will see federation officers using latinum so somehow they're provided that but inside Federation, and at least on Earth, life is pretty sweet. TNG really hit its viewers over the head with the fact that poverty, war, disease, famine, these things all died out within 50 years of the Vulcans making first contact with Earth on April 4th, 2063. Uh, No, I did not have to look that date up. (laughs) I I knew that off the top of my head. I am so super impressed yeah. that you can be off the top of your head you no know, information that i might actually need to use one day in one ear and out the other fictional future data first contact with an alien race that i can pull right out of my ass at the drop of a hat <laughs> once this secret gets out i think the men will be lined up banging down my door <laughs> i will be the bell of the ball
0: with your special
1: skill (laughs) yeah it's my bar trick this is my bar (laughs) trick so i don't i don't go to bars anymore i'm too old for bars but (laughs) we can also surmise i think that there's still some form of private property and some means of passing that private property down from generation to generation. So, for example, Picard's Chateau has been in the family for years. So it's not something that, okay, people had it and then it goes to the state or it belongs to the people at large. Clearly there's a way of passing your real property down from generation to generation within a family within a family. So it's not like a totally communist system with no private property. So, Steph, you're a you're a bit of a radical sort. Does does that, <laughs> does that disappoint you in any way?
0: Well, um, I have to wonder if there's still uh, billionaires. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's <still> no money. <laughs> right. So, um, I I it's very difficult for me to imagine what a post scarcity economy with no currency would look like if it's not communist. But no, the reason I had like a disappointed look on my face is because as having like anxiety flashbacks to the first year of law school and property yes. class. <laughs> they yeah. start talking about be simple. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, what? <laughs> Do you think Jean-Luc received the chateau in Be Simple?
1: (laughs) I hope that whatever deed devised the chateau to Picard contained a springing executive interest. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting ill to my stomach. (laughs) If he did not use the chateau to produce wine, it was no longer his. (laughs) It would go to his brother, Robert, and his nephew, Renee.
0: Is that for real? Are those real yeah, people?
1: They, well, they were. They died in a fire.
0: What? Did <laughs> <laughs> this, this, this happen in TNG? It happened in one of the movies. Um, oh, fuck. Because I still haven't <laughs> seen any of the movies. Yeah. That, now, that, now that we've seen... I mean, I know we're going to continue doing these episodes of Picard, but we really do got to go back and...
1: Watch the damn movies. So I think, though, that um, we should, for, I apologize to all the non-lawyers out there, but I think I'm going to go with calling the Chateau wineacre.
0: Just for the record, these, uh, actually, for the record, is also a bad lawyer joke, but these are all just bad <laughs> lawyer jokes, all of so, them. So please so feel to gloss over them if you don't know any lawyers and uh, <laughs> or if you've never had to engage in the soul-crushing endeavor that is law school
1: <laughs> it is soul-crushing and being a lawyer is soul-crushing but we're like so defensive about our work and about our about our um careers as as you'll see later in this podcast when I have some thoughts and I know you have some, <laughs> some thoughts as well
0: oh I have some but anyway thoughts. <laughs> but anyway
1: so I don't think that in a post-scarcity economy anything is stopping Raffi from getting a hold of whatever material she needs to build her own wine acre but maybe there's something stopping her from getting the real property because it does seem like real property can be passed down from generation to generation but what's interesting is that in this moneyless culture she's somehow clearly perceiving herself to be in a different class than Picard so if it's not an economic class, then maybe she's perceiving herself as part of a different social class. And I thought it was interesting to think about, well, in a post-scarcity economy where there's no currency, what would make you feel like you're in a different class than somebody? Um, maybe, and this is just a shot in the dark, having things that are passed down through many generations is some sort of defining status in the 24th century. We're It's a world where you can replicate anything. You want something, you walk up to a computer, you tell it what you need, and boom, it appears to you. Maybe having a connection to something that existed prior to replication is some sort of a status symbol. So, you know, I was curious to get your thoughts on it. I mean, obviously, the Occam's razor explanation is that these hack writers just didn't do enough research and don't actually know that that's how the 24th century uh, economy functions on earth but I mean I know and I've watched a lot of TNG and that's why it just I don't know (laughs) this episode is not very funny because I'm feeling like personally hurt by the direction that the show is (laughs) (laughs) taking. I I, I am the worst kind of fan (laughs) (laughs) well
0: so in terms of the economics um it Honestly, I don't know very much about economic theory. I mean, I've tried to read about it. I tried to read uh, Capital in the 21st Century, um, and it killed me inside. I think I finished it, but it was like none of it sunk in. Um, So it's very dense. But when I'm thinking about mechanics of what a world would look like post scarcity with no currency it is very difficult for me to conceive of what could create social stratification um, i just i and and again what you're saying that becomes complicated because then you have people like picard who have things like chateaus and like a household staff so obviously there has to be some sort of class differentiation, and it's unclear whether that's happening because of the fact that he is, you know, a starfleet officer. Right. So maybe maybe the stratification is based on like what your. Obviously everybody has to work, even in a post scarcity economy, I guess. So, but again, the problem here is that I don't think anyone on the show's creative staff, put any serious thought into what an economic system like this would look like. They,
1: they did not. And that's why we're here. We're <laughs> here to fill in those blanks. <laughs> well, but I think this just... fucking show is like a slice of Swiss cheese. And you <laughs> and I are going to plug every one of those goddamn holes. There's this, no is, this is my economics redemption arc. I'm coming oh. back from that one.
0: I just don't I just don't think that there is any way, you know, like it's like you I think we were talking about this before. It's supposed to be like a post-racist world, post-scarcity world. There's no need for currency anymore. So it's just very difficult for me to understand why there is a social stratification such that Raffy would be so bitter about it. You know, like you know what I mean? Because she's, like, so, I mean, she's, like, really upset. She, then she makes references to, you know, oh, there you are in your chateau with your fine oak beams. And it's like, oh, but. It's
1: yeah. Just, it's like you could replicate an oak beam. <laughs> There's nothing <laughs> <laughs> stopping you. So. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. but But I think putting aside the fact that these writers clearly didn't really put a lot of thought into how the economics of the 24th century worked, it did raise the question in my mind, which is, is there something about the human condition where we are going to find ways to create social stratification, no matter what our condition is, you know, Currently, we have social stratification based upon race. We have social stratification based upon ethnicity. We have social stratification based upon religion, economic class, certainly, sexuality, the type of job that you work. So it's like nine or ten different ways that we have social stratification now. If we ever get to a point in society where things are eliminated things no longer create social stratification. You know, we discover that aliens exist and it brings humanity together as a people and we really no longer feel like skin color or a location in the world is, is a way to differentiate us any more than eye color or hair color would be. Then are we going to find new ways to impose a social stratification upon humanity? Like, is that something that's inherent about the human condition or is that something that can be overcome?
0: It's hard for me to... I don't, oh, Jesus, this is going to get dark. (laughs) (laughs) I think that the human race over and over and over has shown that we're just kind of awful. So I do think it's part of the human condition to seek differences and to create social stratification based on differences. I know that there are few existing egalitarian societies, but I think even those societies still have, uh, some forms of stratification in it. But, you know, when we talked about this in the great lost episode of like a fish, um, originally I said, I think it's a uniquely human condition, but then when I give it some more thought, I don't know that it is uniquely human because I can think of, other pack or herd animals that socially satisfy as well you know like chimpanzees there's going to be or like lions there's going to be a head uh. you know lion <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know that also begs an interesting question you know Rios who we haven't met yet in this episode but we will makes numerous references throughout the show to the fact that Picard is paying him how is Picard paying him if there's no currency on Earth? Are they using off-world currency so he can go gambling on off-world sites? Is he paying him in Chateau Picard wine? And let's talk about Chateau Picard wine, okay? Because it's scarce, right? It's, it's grown with grapes. Um, unless they've done something to control the weather, which maybe they have, harvest season is happening only at a discrete time of year, and I think Laris makes reference to there being, like, it's time for the harvest or something like that. They're not producing infinite bottles of Chateau Picard wine. So, like, where does it go? Who decides how you get it? Uh, Again, these are things (laughs)
0: that I feel have not been given much consideration. Uh, (laughs) As far as as Rios, uh, we haven't met him yet in this episode, but you're right. You know, throughout the series, he'll say things like, I'm expensive. Um, Which, again, you know, what are we using to pay Rios? Is it latinum? I mean, like,
1: (laughs) again, it's just... If this isn't going to make sense if for anybody who hasn't seen a couple episodes down, but maybe he's getting paid in mermaid trinkets. <laughs> <laughs> uh uh.
0: Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> it's like episode, uh-huh. seven or episode seven or six. Yeah. 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 Well, so
1: what do you think of Raffi so far? Uh,
0: So at this point, I've actually seen this episode three times. Um, The first time, at, so some background into how Kat and I have been doing <laughs> it. We'll watch it just the way you would watch a TV show for enjoyment. Then we'll do a second watching where we'll, we'll sit down and pay close attention, and take notes on things we want to talk about. But again, you know, when we did this uh, second watching, it was like three weeks ago in yeah. preparation for the recording that we did before. So I honestly had no recollection of this episode because since then I have, <laughs> again, because like it's got her hell in a handbasket, so, right.
1: Yeah. So
0: like, I mean, I'm not gonna lie. While I've been doing everything I can to read books and take online courses and do, you know, clean and do all the projects that I never got to do before. Um, I have been watching a shitload of TV and <laughs> the 17 series that I've watched in between when I watched this episode, <laughs> <and they have laughs> took up all the space in my brain. So I had to rewatch the episode yesterday mm-hmm. and I am less disdainful of all these stock characters now than I was before to me, Rafi was like a very basic stereotypical cliche stock character of like this troubled woman who, um, you know, obviously is going to go on some sort of redemption arc. And obviously the relationship between, uh, you know, her and captain Picard is going to have to somehow heal throughout the course of the show. And honestly now having seen how the show ends they did not do well with any of that um yeah. she did not get a redemption arc um I mean I guess that's gonna be dealt with in season two but anyway I was kind of like gosh I hate this character nobody put any thought into her but then the more I watched it I was like holy shit I am Wrathy!" <laughs> Am I a stock character in my own life? (laughs) Because she's talking about how she slid into humiliation and rage. And in my mind, I'm like, yeah, me too, actually. (laughs) So I'm going to stop hating on her as a stock character until I figure out whether or not I am in fact a stock character.
1: Are we all just stock characters in our own lives? Because I have to tell you, every time I would watch like one of those quintessential early 2000s romantic comedies with the girl who's like totally uber confident and uber successful in her professional life but she's a hot mess fuck up in her personal life I'm like oh that's me I'm really good at what I do like work-wise but I feel like my personal life I would describe it as like one long slip on a banana peel
0: if I were to describe my own stock character, I'd be like a Wednesday Addams type who's like, ooh, I'm so dark and mysterious and weird, but interesting and intriguing. But really, I'm just kind of basic. do. yeah. I also
1: like, well, I don't know. I have a lot of these archetypes in my own life, so maybe I shouldn't be so quick to judge. Continuing on with the show, we go to the Artifact, where nothing interesting ever happens, and we see that somebody is watching surveillance video of Soji whispering sweet nothings to that one Borg drogue that they're reclaiming, and it's Hugh! It's motherfucking Hugh! Steph, do you know who (laughs) Hugh is? Do you know?
0: I do. This is, like, the one thing I remember from TNG. I don't remember a ton about the episode. Uh, Like, I have no recollection of what the plot was. But I do remember there was some situation where a drone, a Borg drone, ended up on the Enterprise. And they, like, separated him off, I think, into, like, the brig or something. And then uh, Hugh and Jean-Luc had all these, like, really in-depth, interesting discussions about like the meaning of life and like what it is to be human. Um, but that's all I remember.
1: Yeah, that they had one and he had other conversations with, with other characters. Of course, the Jean-Luc conversation sticks out because it's a Jean-Luc Picard speech. And every time you hear a Jean-Luc Picard speech, you're just like, Ugh, you know, <laughs> um, but one of my favorite parts of the Star Trek franchise is this constant tension between ex Borg. And it's usually ex Borg who are formally human who've lost their connection to the Collective and the humans around them because the humans around them will be like, you need to be more human. You need to explore your humanity because we're super awesome. And then sometimes the explorer will be like, uh, are you though? So (laughs) you get a lot of that between Janeway and Seven of Nine on Voyager, which makes a really interesting viewing. but. Well, anyway, maybe I should back up a little bit. So for anybody who doesn't know, Hugh was an injured Borg drone, like you said, that the Enterprise picked up and resuscitated. Um, He didn't have a name. He went by a designation. They kind of named him like a little puppy. So while he was on the Enterprise, his connection to the Collective was severed and his individuality started reasserting itself. The crew initially considered... um, My recollection was that they had considered infecting him with some kind of disease. But then when I went back and rewatched this episode, basically, they were going to, like, take a picture of, like, an M.C. Escher painting and put it in his memory. And it's like, the Borg will never be able to solve this. It was going to oh, be like...
0: jeez.
1: <laughs> and it was somehow going to lead to a total systems
0: collapse, which... You know... Oh, man. So it wasn't, sure. like, virus-laden nanites or something? No, but... but
1: <laughs> I feel... I will say that, okay, now they decide not to go with the MC Escher plan and genocide the Borg because they decide it's morally wrong to genocide a genocidal race. Um <laughs> In the final episode of Voyager, there's this alternate alternative future timeline, and future Janeway does decide to infect the Borg with a neurolytic pathogen. Another term that I remember from an episode I've seen twice in my entire life. You know, there are words whose meanings I can't remember, and I have to look them up over and over and over and over. But damn it if I don't know what a neurolytic pathogen is. So, Hugh, back to Hugh. He is uh, pretty deborgified at this point, he's the director of the Borg Reclamation Project. And he goes to the find Soji to congratulate her on speaking to a reclaimed Borg in that Borg's native language, which seems like not the kind of thing that's worthy of lavish praise. But I don't know. Anyway, Hugh has decided to let Soji interview Romda. Romda is another X-B. She is a Romulan. She is, in fact, the foremost expert on ancient Romulan myth or was before her assimilation. Now, Soji's research, her alleged reason for being on the artifact, is that she is researching whether there is some therapeutic good to be derived from a shared mythical framework um, that could be used to treat these survivors of assimilation. So,
0: (laughs) (laughs) when we originally talked about this in the the great lost episode of Like a Fish... Um, I was like, "What the fuck does this mean?" It's just like some bananas socio psycho babble. But then Cat blew my mind with her <laughs> explanation. Um, and so I would like uh, I would like you to grace us with your knowledge about what a shared mythical framework is.
1: Okay. So the easiest way to that I can think of to explain a shared mythological framework is to Think about in your mind the concept of a god or a demigod who is conceived via a miraculous birth, lives in human form, dies, and then is reanimated. And most people listening to this are going to recognize that as the story of Jesus Christ. And it is an encapsulation of the story of Jesus Christ. But in fact, there are many stories in many different cultures that... To have a similar narrative framework, uh, Horus in Egyptian myth, Osiris, um, I'm probably going to butcher this, Huitzilopochtli in Aztec culture conceived a child from a ball of feathers, so it was a, a miraculous virgin birth, Juno conceives Mars through the touch of a magic flower, also a virgin birth, key in Chinese culture was conceived after his mother stepped in the giant footprint of a God. So there are like all these stories where a virgin birth or a miraculous birth figures prominently into the creation of somebody who will wind up being a God or a savior figure. There are multiple stories about a God or a savior figure dying and then being resurrected after a period of time. Now there is scholarly debate about how similar these stories really are did they evolve out of one central story or myth or do different human cultures eventually create the same stories without input from other cultures o- over and over and over again that's not anything that i don't think has been really resolved in in scholastic debate or scholarly debate from what i could see but it the point is that's what soji is studying it's not total bullshit you know it's it's this idea of if the ex-borg all have a narrative that they can use to frame their stories that it can somehow help them heal and maybe factor into it that these people are coming out of a collective consciousness um even though they're all going to try to reclaim their individuality still having something that they can all share as a collective even if they're not you know linked biologically or through cybernetics could be helpful so That's my nutshell aversion introduction to shared mythological frameworks. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. But I think it begs the question because... So we know Soji's an android. So we have to assume that this area of interest was programmed into her. She was sent to the artifact for a reason... She was given this area of research interest for a reason. So why? What purpose does it serve for her to be researching shared mythological frameworks as therapy for the XBs? And... We kind of get some hints at an answer later in the series, but but Tilly, nothing. Tilly. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think I'm being very charitable when I say that. So, but again, it's like, okay, but why? Why was that your interest? You know, why? Why did? How about even a more of-
0: fundamental question that I I I don't know if it was answered. Maybe you have some insight into this. What the fuck was her mission to begin with?
1: Oh God, I know. No, nobody <laughs> knows. They don't explain it. They don't explain it. <laughs> so we'll we'll get later in this episode. You know, there are some there are some shit that happened on this particular Borg cube that potentially makes it of interest, but. Why the people who created Soji would know about that and would send her to get information on that just it doesn't make any goddamn sense. It makes me mad. Let's move on because I'm going to like rage smash my computer. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so we go back to Raffi. She's sitting on a giant rock and chugging Picard's wine straight from the bottle as one does. Picard goes and sees her and he's like, yeah, I get it. I suck. I'm sorry. She's still like, you know what? Fuck off. Um, And Picard tells her that she was right all along, that the Tal Shiar is involved somehow, and that the Federation has to be complicit somehow. Um, Raffi says that she has evidence that a high-ranking Starfleet official conspired to bring about the Mars attack. I don't think we ever get to see that evidence, do we, Steph? No. So
0: that's interesting. Cause she sits there. I mean, she makes references throughout that. She's like, I have evidence that, and then like yeah. that evidence is never used. Maybe we could have skipped some of the stuff that happened. I don't know. So, you know,
1: we were, we were saying earlier that these characters, they are all introduced very much as stock characters. And by the end that gets a little bit better, but you know, again, I do think that's a charitable assessment. Um, And I wanted to to have a little bit of a discussion as to part of the reason that I think these characters come off as stockish, or even that they're written as stockish. And that's the way that television has changed over the last 20 to 30 years. So when The Next Generation premiered in 1987, Deep Space Nine premiered in in the 90s, um, the format of those episodes when they first premiered was very episodic. Each episode was pretty self-contained what sometimes like we colloquially refer to as a monster of the week episode, deep space nine changed as it went on and became much more serialized, but, I think it's important to note that each season back in the day, each season of a television series was like 26 episodes. So within the span of a single season of The Next Generation, for example, you'd get a couple of Picard-centric episodes, a couple of Riker-centric episodes, and a couple of Warp-centric episodes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, that allows you to really focus on the character and learn a lot about that character through a story. So there wasn't a huge need to introduce them as being defined by any sort of cliche traits because you as the viewer were going to find out a whole lot about them over a relatively long period of time. You have to contrast that, I think, with today's method of storytelling, which is very serialized. Episodes or seasons tend to last between like 18, 8 and 13 episodes, which is one third to one half of the time spent with each character than 20 years ago. And because of the serialization using each separate episode to focus on a particular character, doesn't really work as well. So you're getting less time with the characters. You're getting less time devoted to each character as an individual. So I feel like a lot of writers and maybe just the hacky writers are like, we got to telegraph what this character is through all of these cliche traits instead of just being like, well, here's a story in which you'll find out some stuff about this character Um, I do think serialization has allowed very talented writers to flourish and be creative, but I also think it encourages not-so-great writers to rely on tropes.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point, I think, and I agree. The first like really revolutionary example of serialized TV that comes to mind. And obviously I'm not a TV historian or anything else. I'm sure that there was some other, you know, prototype for this type of storytelling, but what comes to mind is like the Sopranos and the wire. Um, and at the time, both of those shows were so completely mind blowing. And I imagine they still are, although I haven't rewatched them in a really long time. Um, but they like have so much depth and it goes into everybody's separate story arcs. Like even secondary characters are really well-developed. And um, however, though, and I think this might be a somewhat unpopular opinion, I do think that both of those shows started off with stock characters. Mm. Um, You know, you have like Tony Soprano, who starts off stock with, like, a little flair because he has like the mental health issues that you know are hard for him to admit, but like almost all the people around him are just like stock mobsters. But right. then as the series progresses, um, they all become somewhat nuanced. Um, and I think that's what was referred to as like the golden age of television, and I don't know if we're still in that, although. If we're analyzing whether we're still in the golden age of television, I think that Picard would mitigate against that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: the golden age of television ended with Picard. Um, are we still in the golden age of television? Ask Alan Seppenwall. He literally wrote the book on it. It's called The Revolution Was Televised. <laughs> I haven't read it yet. I hear you have a copy and you still haven't read it. I do. Well, so I hoard
0: books. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I do have a copy of it. Um, oh, I, so do uh, me a
1: favor, um, sanitize it and
0: drop <laughs> it in the middle to me. <laughs> I can't even imagine what it was that made me purchase that book in the first place, but there,
1: there you have it. Anyway, um, so there's a little short snippet of a scene that comes up next. Um, it's going to be important later, so we'll talk about it. Jurati, Dr. Gerardi is at the Daystrom Institute. She's having a nice lunch break involving sushi and opera. My closed captioning tells me it's Cassalian opera, very specific. <laughs> when Commodore O shows up hunting for information about the card. Uh, and that's really where it ends, but this cannot go well. Well, I think. <laughs>
0: It goes well for what we are being shown as some sort of like evil Federation empire, which ultimately it appears that that is not what it, I don't even know. Um, (laughs) I don't know. But um, no, it's certainly not going to be good for our our ragtag team of fancy robot rescuers.
1: (laughs) Yeah, 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 things are going to go off the rails for them. Um, Picard beams onto the ship that Rafi has found for him. It's called La Serena. Which, uh,
0: might be obvious to most, but, uh, La Serena is the mermaid in Spanish.
1: hmm Which is interesting because, um, and I know that you hate these kinds of spoilers, although it's not a spoiler since you've now seen till the end of the series, but in a later episode we will get a sneak peek inside of Rios's quarters, we will definitely see that he has a lot of um, mermaid paraphernalia, I guess would be the word for it. So after you said that to me and I rewatched <laughs> the episode
0: yesterday, um, I did see his weird mermaid Trinket fetish uh, in the later episode, but his tattoo is also a mermaid, and I didn't didn't notice that. that. Yeah. So originally, when I saw his tattoo, it just registered in my mind like, "Ooh, tattoo, hot." It didn't go further (laughs) beyond that. I was like, "Ooh, black ink on his
1: arm." (laughs) I need, I need like an entire season two episode on what the fuck is up with the mermaid fetish. (laughs) I want to know. So Picard's Picard's on the ship, and he's greeted. Not by Rios, but by one of what we will learn are many Rios-inspired holograms that populate. we definitely have to talk about who is our
0: favorite Rios hologram. (laughs) I do have a favorite. And I think you'd probably guess, but we'll do that when that episode comes around.
1: I'm going to describe the scene with Rios because I'm going to enjoy looking at your face over Skype (laughs) if I describe this. So... Rios Proper is sitting on the bridge, shirtless, with a shard of metal stuck in his right shoulder, a tattoo on his left shoulder, Steph is fanning herself, (laughs) as he lights a giant cigar. And after, after the shard of metal is removed, he decides to keep his scar for posterity, Steph, I have seen the credits for the show, and I did not realize that the ghost of Sigmund Freud's erect penis had a (laughs) scoring credit. (laughs) Now, you are definitively turned off by Narek's neck beard, but you would not mind getting a nizzle from Rios's beard. Defend your answer, please.
0: I can easily do that, Kat. Um yes. and I will start I will start my defense by stating that these are two different types of men, right? So Narek is what I would refer to as a soft boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he boy. is a guy who, uh, you know, once you've broken up and, like, maybe you post a cute picture of yourself on Instagram, he'll send you a message being like, hey, just thought about you. I was wondering how you're doing. Right? Rios, on the other hand, I mean... (laughs) I am super super into this whole thing. The blood, the shirtlessness, the chest hair, the tat, the cigar the, like, unnecessary splashing of alcohol into the wound, which makes no sense because he has access to sophisticated medical care. So, like, why would you need to do that? He probably did it because he's dead inside and just needs to feel something. (laughs) So into it, because with Rios, you get, like, the hyper-masculine but angsty, like, emotionally way down stock character and honestly it's a stock character but I don't hate it <laughs> <laughs>
1: but to be fair to Rios I feel like I also would be dead inside if I were constantly surrounded by holograms who looked and sounded exactly like me like every every day I would wake up and see a 3d depiction of my overbite and my weak chin. <laughs> it's like it's bad enough that I have to listen back and edit this fucking show and hear what I sound like to everybody else. That makes me want to stab myself in the hand to the fork. If I had to actually see myself every day, especially if some of those versions of myself had better sexier accents, like I too <laughs> would be dead inside. So I I feel you, Rios, I feel you. Rios is bad boy with a tortured past. Right. Very simple. Right. The tortured past in question involves a heroic Starfleet captain whom Rio served under and was very close to before said heroic Starfleet captain uh, got murdered in the face.
0: <laughs> Which uh, we don't get a lot of information about until later on in the show. Yeah. Um, and again, weird. But we'll we'll talk about it when that comes I, up.
1: T- to me, it was one of those things where it's like, Ooh, I want to hear more about the machinations and political intrigue that led up to that. No, no, we don't. We don't. Yeah, yeah. Um, So Picard and Rios bitch about how they don't like lawyers. And I'm like, oh, just fuck off, you two. I mean... Yeah, but you know what? Like, <laughs> I am so, I'm. So, <laughs> I'm so fucking sick
0: of, like, the lawyer jokes. I know! You know dudes are sitting down and uh, picard is like i'm not in the habit of consulting lawyers before i do what needs to be done and it's like if you had consulted a lawyer at any point throughout this entire journey (laughs) all the ridiculous shit that has happened would not have happened for instance you would not have done that fucking interview because if you had consulted a lawyer the lawyer would have told you hey even if you say, don't ask me this, they're probably still going to do it. And then your lawyer awesome. would have stepped in when the question was asked and your lawyer wouldn't have allowed it to be live taped. Like, yes. this is what lawyers do. Yeah. <laughs> Or how about with the fucking, uh, you know, blowing up Mars and banning synthetic life and not saving the uh, the Romulans? That's all stuff that civil rights lawyers would have done a really amazing job of dealing with. Yeah. So, like, I'm sorry, but maybe you should consult with a lawyer before you go off on your half-baked plans to do (laughs) shit that you're not thinking about very well. So... (laughs) I'll get off my soapbox
1: now. No, no. You definitely need lawyers. You need them more than you need space psychologists. And just an example, do you remember there was an episode of The Next Generation? It's like a very early episode where they go to this planet, um... (laughs) As a matter of fact, I remember the episode because the synth world, when we get to the synth world, like, looks exactly like this planet, where it's, like, all of these very blonde white people in skimpy clothing, like, sitting around doing mere yoga and giving each other massages, and then, like, Wesley falls on a flower bed, and they're like, oh, you have to die now. And (laughs) literally... There's a whole scene in that episode where Picard's like, so nobody read the fucking laws on this planet before we beamed out. And they're all standing around like, no, you know, it'd
0: been great if there was an onboard lawyer on the end. Yeah, yeah, Yeah.
1: exactly.
0: God. I mean, and somebody to manage these first contact
1: situations. I'm just baffled by this. I know, me too. It, it really, it really is baffling. But you know, I think it comes down to this, like very cultural, cultural hatred, hatred, of hatred that we have, and this sense that permeates society that anybody can do a lawyer's job. Which, which they do in Star Trek. They're like, you have to be the lawyer now.
0: Let's, uh, let's, let's everybody stop hating lawyers. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay. Um, hey, tell us about the ship that Rios used to serve on with his murdered captain. Uh
0: yeah, so uh getting past my extreme frustration at the beginning of this discussion between Rios and Picard, um, we do learn that uh Rios served previously as the XO, Honor Federation heavy cruiser, whatever that means, called the Ibn Majid. And um, so obviously I looked this up on the Googles. And it is named after an Arabian navigator and cartographer uh, named Ahmed Ibn Majed, um, who was also known as the Lion of the Sea. Um, and he is famous for something that probably didn't happen. Well, he was famous in his own right, but he is remains famous in the West um, because apparently he is uh, known to have helped Vasco da Gama with uh, his navigation endeavors. Oh. But there's a scholarly debate about it and the foremost scholar, which apparently there is a foremost scholar for literally everything, (laughs) uh, thinks that that probably didn't happen, that that's, you know, like an apocryphal story. Oh, that's interesting. The other thing we learn about this uh, ship during the scene is that uh, evil Starfleet destroyed all the records um, because something happened on it uh, and again I'm not really sure why this was framed this way in this scene because later on we learn that that's not quite what happened but yeah I don't know there it yeah. is
1: Anyway,
0: yeah
1: alright do you want to talk about the what you thought was a really interesting dynamic here between Picard and Rios Oh yeah. Okay. So I felt like this scene was very awkward
0: because it, and I don't know if it was scripted this way on purpose or not, but, and I, it kind of maybe lends into the narrative of Picard outside of his element, you know, like all the things that typically work for him in the past are not working for him now. And he kind of walked onto the ship and Actually, on second watching, if you watch really closely, as he walks by the captain's chair, he, like, looks at it, like, mournfully. <laughs> 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 then he sits down, and he, like, manspreads, and he, like, puts his leg up, and he, like, leans back. Um, and he's, like, having this, you know, almost, like, verbal sparring match with Rios. And I thought it was just very un
1: like you know yeah yeah I I don't recall Picard being like a leg spreading mansplainer I don't recall Picard having that kind of mocking tone where he's like I read you like a book man you know although this is like not the first time in the series that we'll see Picard trying to get what he wants by mocking somebody um which is very un-Picard like right yeah Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about the book that Rios is reading.
0: So that's another interesting thing. And I think it actually, if I would imagine this was done on purpose, we have to give the writer some credit where it is due. Um, But he is reading a book by Miguel de Unamuno, which I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. And it's called A Tragic Sense of Life. And, um, this is interesting because I you know looked this up, obviously, and I purchased it for ninety nine cents on Kindle. so there there's our little plug for Amazon, um, I know. even though even though Amazon is kind of like an evil empire, too, but whatever. Um, not whatever. Someday we'll have to discuss that. But <laughs> for now, in the world of coronavirus, I'm using Amazon, unfortunately, for my, book purchasing needs. De unamuno was a 20th century existentialist philosopher who made an argument um, in this book that human life is tragic because humans are uniquely aware that someday they will die. Mm-hmm. So his theory was that um, almost all human activity throughout the course of one's life is some attempt to survive our deaths. So if we think back on the shared mythical framework that we were talking about before, that's interesting. And now having seen the ending of the show, I definitely think that this is where this was going. Uh-huh. Um, and we'll talk about it then uh, in a conversation that Picard has with uh, a character that is no longer living. But um <laughs> Um, So I guess the shared mythical framework that exists in our society, which I don't think that we really get any indication that Christianity is still a big thing in, you know, 24th century Earth. Actually, uh, religion doesn't really come up very often for humans, does it?
1: The only religion that appears to have survived into the 24th century for humanity is vague Native American spiritualism. (laughs) That's it. That's the only thing that made it. Chakotay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, like which Native American tribe? No, no, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. No, no. Just yeah, yeah. Yep, yep,
0: yep, yep. um, Yeah. So, but the 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 Christ story and then all of its parallel stories and myths tend to deal with um, some sort of deity or demigod or God that uh, self- sacrifices and the point of believing in them is essentially for someday humanity to be revived. you know right. so either either there is an afterlife like a heaven, or uh, there's going to be, like, an apocalypse kind of situation where afterwards everyone will be brought back to life. So a lot of these uh, mythical frameworks that we have kind of deal with this concept of how do we survive our deaths, whether it be physically survive our death, you know, by, for example, inserting our consciousness into a golem, or... Or if it's, like, um, like surviving our deaths in a religious sense of mm. going to heaven or something like that. Okay. Um, anyway, the idea that our consciousness should survive. So, um, yeah, I think this is actually one cool thing that the writers did that kind of connects along the series. And we'll talk about it more once uh, this issue comes up again, I think, in the last episode.
1: That's some deep shit, Seth. <laughs>
0: I don't know if I did a good job.
1: (laughs) So Picard had sent Raffi some information on Bruce Maddox, who he is trying to find since the information he has from Jurati is that Maddox is probably responsible for these synths. And her curiosity gets the better of her. She starts researching Maddox. She does what I guess can only be described in 21st century terms as cracking his metadata, and tracks him to somewhere called FreeCloud, which, Steph, do you remember in the early 2000s wild west of the internet, like, you would get a pop-up ad and then another pop-up ad, and eventually they would, like, fill up your entire screen and freeze your computer?
0: Why, yes, Kat, yes, I do.
1: Age, sex, location? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cloud seems to be a location that, that consists entirely of these pop-up ads. Um, <laughs> I do sorry. not want to go to there. <laughs> and, and sadly, we also, will.
0: I also do not want our computers to become these, like, flicky screen it, it seems pretty hellish to me. Uh,
1: see, I like the holographic computers. I like them from a production design uh, perspective because... To me, it's like I see these holographic computers and immediately everything on every Star Trek prior to that looks totally clunky. And I think that's really cool. I I do like that. Um, Obviously, they perhaps seem somewhat impractical to work on a daily basis. But for purposes of watching Star Trek, I'm like, oh, that's I like that. Um, Yeah, it looks pretty cool. Yeah. Back on the artifact, Hugh takes Soji into what I can only describe is a very typical Star Trekian depiction of an asylum. I've never been inside an asylum, but every asylum at Star Trek all looks the same. It's always like a small cafeteria, people are sitting at little tables, their movements are stilted, they're playing little games. It's like it's, it's, it's always the same shit. These people that Soji is visiting are called the disordered, and they're all Romulans. And it's clear that they are not handling their reclamation super great. <laughs> <laughs> not so
0: much. So uh, so you, you, when we talked about this the first time, I was like, can you explain the disorder to me? Because it doesn't really make sense. And you said I would get an explanation in a future episode. And I did not feel like I got that explanation. <laughs>
1: So, I mean, I, I think that they do give a I think there's a difference between an explanation and a reason. You get a <laughs> you get a reason why they're all disordered. Maybe you don't get an explanation, but it it has to do with something that all of those Romulans experienced prior to their assimilation. So we'll, t- we'll talk about it when we when we get to the episode. Um, Steph. Your past life involved a career as a nail polish blogger. <laughs> well, I don't know that I would call
0: it a career, but um, it was definitely—I um, guess—I was a content creator before it was cool. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no,
1: well, yeah, you know, but like, it, like our like our waiter told us that one time we went out <laughs> to dinner. It's the twenty-first century. If you're not creating content, what are you even doing?
0: Right. Which yes. I guess is accurate. Um, yeah. yeah, I had I did a nail polish blog about, I guess, 10 years ago. Yeah, like, uh, it was during law school. So 2008, 2009. Um, and it was actually kind of popular. Uh, I had like a, you know, a little readership. Um, and I don't really do my nails anymore. Uh, but I always pay a lot of attention to people's nails. And so I, of course, uh, since uh, Ramda is playing like a card game, sort of like tarot situation, noticed her nails, which are very (laughs) on point. Um, They they are the almond shaped with like a very fine tip and they're painted this very like mushroomy white color. Which is odd to me because these people are all sitting in an asylum inside a board cube. So there must be a
1: nail salon on (laughs) (laughs) the. Unclear. So maybe (laughs) this is a good point to segue into a discussion about the fashion on the show. And I, I do want to say I'm so, so excited because one of my favorite fashion blogs, Tom and Lorenzo, has just announced that next week they're going to be doing a deep dive into the fashion of the series. And those guys really know their shit. They're amazing. So I'm really excited to, like, share my insights with you and then to read that article next week and see, like, how much I picked up on that I was right about and also to see, you know, what their interpretation of the costuming is. Um But one of the things that we mentioned a little bit is that the fashion on this show is relatively casual and relatively drab, as opposed to the next generation where whenever you would see one of the characters out of uniform, um, they were generally in very bright colors. The women wore a lot of like opaque tights, a lot of neon ombre colors, jewel tones. And, Is that emblematic of the change in the Federation? Because as we've discussed, the Federation has gone through some shit. They've gone through the Dominion War, the Mars attack, the possible encroaching authoritarianism of its government, and has the fashion adjusted accordingly. So the question that I wanted to ask you, Steph, is, is this an example of the headline index? Um, I think it
0: probably is. Uh, According to Wikipedia, the finest source of information on the Internet, uh, the hemline index is a theory presented by economist George Taylor in 1926. And his theory was that the hemlines on women's dresses and skirts rise along with stock prices. So in a good economy. Um, we'll see things like miniskirts, uh, like in the 1920s and the 1960s. And in uh, lagging economies, uh, like the 1929 Wall Street crash, hems will drop, like, almost overnight. Interesting theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it, it seems so far like the costuming on this show has been very purposeful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I do think that, uh, yeah, i would be interested in seeing the analysis from, I've n- I do not follow this blog, but I've read a lot of books on uh, mm-hmm. historical fashion and, uh, you know, the intersection between fashion, society, and culture. Um, so I, I would be very interested to see how the costuming uh, correlates with the writing and the character development.
1: Yeah, and, and, you know, the costuming in this show, especially for the women so far, it's, like, been a lot of slim pants, a lot of, like, oversized cardigans, and and it's, like, it it basically, all of these female characters, to me, kind of look like they stepped out of the Everlane catalog. Um, towards the end of the series, they do get, like, a little more cargo pantsy, but I guess there's, like, a utilitarian reason why they're dressing that way. Um but what's interesting is that you have this fashion that's relatively drab, and then Hugh shows up and he is wearing a fucking fabulous harness. He <laughs> looks like <laughs> Timothy at the Golden Globes. The harness looks like it's made from the Borg ship, it is Borg fetish wear. And I kind of think maybe I've just invented a new subgenre of kink. <laughs> you are welcome <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah and i i think i've told you i think i've mentioned this in a previous episode of like a fish um i am totally into the gothic aesthetic and if i could yes. go about my business however i wanted which actually depending on how long the quarantine lasts i might just start being actually (laughs) I am not gonna lie I did a little bit of research about what I would have to do to dye my hair various colors since nobody's gonna see me anyway um but yeah harnesses corsets totally into it
1: (laughs) well my fashion goal should we ever be released from quarantine is to become an old lady and retire to New York City and dress like iris outfall for the rest of my life like oversized glasses garish colors I am very determined that society will not erase me just because I've gotten older and because society has a tendency to do that, like my giant fuck you to society will be like wearing giant costume jewelry and ballroom skirts, sitting at Viselka, eating my progi. That's gonna be my <laughs> it's gonna be my giant middle finger to the world.
0: I am planning to do the same. Basically, going to wear ridiculous wigs and uh, giant ballroom gowns. So oh, there you go. that's going to be my okay. that's going to be my old age.
1: I like it. I like it. So <laughs> anyway, back to the show. Rhonda is sitting at her little asylum table. She's playing some sort of tarot card game, kind of a thing. I don't know. Yeah,
0: um, I also have a board game fetish in addition to my weird gothic aesthetic fetish, um, which uh, when I saw this, I was like, ooh, please let this uh, play an additional role in this series, which it does not.
1: (laughs) 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 Um, So Soji gives Rhonda her spiel about, you know, I'm hoping to create a shared narrative framework, blah, blah, blah. Now, you know, again, we have to assume that this... Drive of Soji's was programmed into her. And for whatever reason, when Soji says this, it gets Ramda's attention. We will sadly never learn why, but it does. She proclaims that she knows Soji. She says, I know you from tomorrow. Soji then spits out a bunch of stuff that it doesn't seem like she's supposed to know, like what ship Ramda was on how that ship was assimilated, and then something went wrong on the cube once that ship was assimilated. Rhonda pulls a card that has two women on it, and she asks Soji which sister is she, the one who lives or the one who dies? She then grabs a guard's gun and tells Soji, I know who you are. You are Seb Cheneb. You are the destroyer. Soji looks shocked and devastated, but... I think I'd be kind of stoked if somebody nicknamed me the destroyer. Uh, yeah, please. <laughs> somebody start calling me the destroyer. I think you should write to the bar and see if they will officially <laughs> change your name. Cause <laughs> it does not take much to get your name changed on the roster of attorneys. Yeah. You, just... you pretty much just have to write and ask. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, um, Ramda takes the gun that she has stolen and turns it on herself almost as if her mind has been broken.
0: (laughs) So we all know she knows the damn secret.
1: (laughs) To to the extent that anybody knows the secret. Soji disarms her pretty impressively and all the rest of the disordered Romlins stare at her. Um, Steph, you have to look closely to see it, but did you notice that Soji has an evil gray streak in her hair?
0: I did not notice it until you pointed it out to me. Um, It's very not visible in the original episodes, um, but it does become more visible as the show wears on. So I think that's our hint that perhaps
1: the prophecy might be correct yeah maybe soji is evil um you know who else has an evil gray streak is a uh, tulsi gabbard that's right she does yeah, she's pretty yeah. badass
0: aside from the fact that she's like you know
1: Yeah. <laughs> so maybe soji is going to destroy the world by launching a third-party presidential candidacy that ultimately guarantees the re-election of a despotic leader <laughs> oh, just a thought
0: that would be an efficient way to do it. Yeah,
1: yeah, it would work. It would work. Um, you also had mentioned that you want a gray streak. So maybe you are the destroyer. I want a gray streak merely for
0: people to see it and assume that I am. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a character cue. It is, it is. Um, so back at the chateau, Javon is sending Picard off with some nice bread and cheese when shots are fired inside the chateau because the ninjas have arrived. Laris grabs a letter opener and Jabon grabs a bottle of wine. And I think like, oh, this is going to be cool. We're going to see how these two trained Tal Shiar agents can use anything as a weapon. But actually, as it turns out, Picard's place is Fucking stocked, loaded with weapons. I mean, it is armed to the teeth. Why? It seems very un-24th century, post-scarcity, post-poverty, because as Deanna Troy once explained to Mark Twain in an episode of (laughs) Star Trek The Next Generation, there is no crime in the 24th century. I'm just going to speculate that Larish and Javon stalked the place up, and I'll chalk it up to their tel and general Romulan sense of paranoia. Anyway, the last ninja is taken out by Dr. Dratti, who in very television fashion has just decided to come over for a visit without calling or texting first. Anyway, um, Laris and Javon have managed to capture one of these clowns, they interrogate him until he refers to Soji as the Destroyer. Then he takes his little acid pill and dissolves himself, almost taking Shibon out in the process. Soji, back on the artifact, is in her quarters, and she calls her mom and asks if Daj is okay. Mom says, yeah, Daj is fine. She wants to get a puppy. And Soji falls asleep in the middle of this conversation, which will turn out to mean something in a future episode, but not in a way that we fully understand, like, why she was programmed with this function. I I don't know. I just... I kind of think that these androids are not programmed with the sophistication that we are led to believe that they're programmed with. Um, Soji wakes up to fucking Narek ringing (laughs) her (laughs) doorbell. We almost made it, Steph. We almost made it an entire episode, but here he is to grind the plot to a halt.
0: Um, Narek, dude, I'm so over it. I know. (laughs) Soji is like,
1: I know things, but I don't know how I know things. And Narek is like, I know this. I know I'm falling in love with you. Why? (laughs) This is so bad. It's so bad. I am about to go off on a bitter feminist rant. Um, (laughs) We have not been given one reason, one reason for Soji to be attracted to Narek on any deeper level than him just being her fuckboy. You want to have a fuckboy? Fine. Great. But we are supposed to take for granted that she's into him that it's just a coincidence that of all the scientists and people on the ship, she would fall for the Tal Shiar spy who was sent to extract all her secrets. And it's bullshit. I would have liked to have been given at least one scene where Narek uses his alleged super spy skills to manipulate Soji into feeling like there is a genuine connection with them. That would have made the relationship a lot more believable, and it would have made him a more believable spy. But... They don't do that because the writers think that it is more important to not develop a relationship between Soji and Narek, but give us more incest light scenes with his stupid sister. Um, (laughs) We are going to be having a discussion, Stephanie, at the end of this series about the way these predominantly male writers use sex with the female characters on this show, specifically the female villains, because fuck.
0: It's so bad. It's so bad. It's so fucking bad. Yeah. They seem to have been doing so well, like, including female characters and making them all different, and although they are sock characters, but then the fucking villains. I
1: know,
0: I know. Jesus Christ. Why is... I just... We... we We let's save the sexy sister discussion for when we talk about a future sexy character that we have not met yet, because I think yeah. they both have to be analyzed together., they, but they it's just I, I almost feel like the show should be stripped of any feminist credibility that it had because of these two characters., it, so it's like, it's all right,. So bad. Yeah, I, I mean, and honestly, I wasn't so offended by the sexy sister until I met the sexy future character that we have not met yet. Because it's just like, yeah. OK, so you guys just think that all quote unquote evil women are sex pots and that that's how you like dupe men. with
1: Well, the, it's like know. it's it's the threat of women's sexuality that, you know, a woman who knows how to use her sexuality is so threatening that she must, in fact, be a villain. But we will, we will go, we will go more in depth into that later. Anyway, um, <laughs> to wrap this episode up, Gerardi is still at the Chateau and she announces that she's going with Picard. So the crew now consists of Gerardi, oh, Picard, Jurati, Rios, and Raffi who appears on the La Serena. and she's like, I'm going, but only because I want to go to Free Cloud for my own secret reasons. Picard gives the command to engage, which... <laughs> and... Thank you for the fan service. Yes. And we're off. Oh, my God. All right. So should we talk about the uh, the Bechdel test? Yeah. Yeah. All yeah, right. It.
0: Um, so
1: this was not one of the better Bechdel episodes. We do get a brief scene between gerardi and O., At the moment, it's all about Picard, um, although we will later get a more extended version of that scene and and see that it is about more. Um, But for for purposes of this episode, it does not pass the test. Um, Soji and Ramda do get some quality time together and have a conversation that has nothing to do with a dude. It has to do with Romulan mythology and the fact that Soji is a prophecy destroyer. Um, So that is a good scene. So, yeah, actually, yeah. I think this uh,
0: this is probably the best Bechdel scene so far, because not only is it, like, a fairly interesting and sophistic- sophisticated conversation between two female characters that does not pertain to a male character, but also, um, especially given what ultimately happens mm-hmm. in, in the show, where it ties it back to what we were talking about in the beginning. Um, you know, if, if Romulan myth foretells the Coming of a synth that will essentially start an apocalypse, then it starts to make sense why Rafi's theory that the Tal Shi'ar was behind the attack on Mars makes sense because then you're essentially picking between two evils, uh, you know, potentially doom whoever is still left on the Romulan homeworld to death uh, in exchange for saving millions or losing thousands or saving thousands, but losing millions. Um, And so I thought that that was interesting because that was the subtext of that conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I think that one definitely gets some points for Bechdel.
1: And, and I will have a lot to say in future episodes about the way that they handled the Romulan characters in the Jat Vosch and how Listen, as a lawyer, I fucking hate it when people tell me how to do my job, and I'm sure that no television writer appreciates it when, you know, some chick in her workout gear is sitting on her closet floor telling them how to write a television show, but... You know, I'm sorry. I I think that there was a better way to handle these Romulans who are so clearly coded as villains and over-the-top campy villains at that, when really their motivations, however misguided, are to save as many people as they possibly can. (laughs) And not just Romulans. They're like trying to save all organic life in the universe. So why are we supposed to view them as bad? I, I don't. I, I think that was a terrible miscalculation with the writing. Well, they could have made it more nuanced, you know, yes. because I do. I, I, it does present
0: a problem of like moral relativism, you know. It, it would have to like delve into like all the philosophical issues that are raised by what the Romulan mission requires, you mm-hmm. know, essentially ex- ex- extinguishing one form of theoretical life in exchange for others, but. It could have been nuanced, and it was not. Right. And it, right. it was not nuanced because of the coding as these... The coding these characters as villains, you know? So, like, they all wear black... And, yeah. like, the women are sexy, except for Commodore O, who's just, like, hyper-competent, you know, like, essentially the, the equivalent of, like, a stark haircut, you
1: know? Well, so it's just, I, just, uh... I just assumed that the male writers didn't make Commodore O sexy because they thought she was too old to be sexy. And I know that that's probably, like, a horrible assumption on my part, but, I mean, all I have to go on is how they've treated their female villains, so... <laughs> That's true. You know, you're, I mean, yeah. you're probably right about that. Back to Bechdel. So Soji talks to her mom and the conversation is about Dodge, but I think we, the cat's out of the bag. Soji's mom is not mom. Soji's mom right. is some pro as a program somewhere. And I don't think that when you're a woman and you, hey Siri, your iPhone that counts as passing the Bechdel test. Gerardi and Rafi talk briefly on the bridge of the La Serena It's tangentially related to Picard, but it's really mostly about who Jurati is and why she's joined the mission. So, I guess if we're feeling charitable, we can count it. (laughs) Sure. We can can, can count it. Sure. So, anyway, on that very optimistic note... uh, We should, we should tell our audience that we are expanding. All right. So we have an Instagram now, like a fish needs a starship, a Twitter, like a fish needs, and an email address like a fish needs a starship at gmail.com. Send us your thoughts, comments, concerns, criticisms, corrections, hate mail, um, musings and anxieties about the fate of the universe. Um, (laughs) Assuming we all make it through this, we'll set up a Facebook community So, thanks for listening. Stay safe. Wash your fucking hands. and (laughs) Don't go outside unless you need to. Yeah, we will be back soon with um, more depressing musings on the fate of a show that could have been a lot better. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, everyone. Bye.